0: This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success.
1: And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, October 22nd, 2020 edition of Invest Talk. I appreciate you all tuning in. Today and all this week, I know Steve will be back tomorrow. But uh, it's been a it's been a busy week, a lot of news, and we are fast moving into the fall. I can feel a little bit of a fall chill in the air, and we are. Solidly into earnings season as well, so a lot of market gyrations and, and stock gyrations that you see moving up, down, uh, up and down in a big manner, uh, depending on how well those earnings reports come out. So. The wild ride for the year continues and we're likely going to see that for the fourth quarter as well. I'm Justin Klein and today in this program and podcast I will do my best to provide you with unbiased answers to your finance and investment questions. I know you want strategies to help deal with this market environment that is evolving. That's key here. We are in an evolving market environment. This is not the environment that you have seen over the past 10 years. It's not even the environment that you saw over the last 10 months. Today, for example, you saw the Russell 2000 up strong. The S&P was up. The NASDAQ, however, was barely positive, barely positive. You continue to see uh, a move out of growth stocks into value stocks. Energy did well today. Financials did well today. Technology, not so much. The XLK, the technology ETF, down about half a percent. So, what is this telling us? Starting to tell me that the market is positioning for a more normalized economy. A less... COVID economy, more direct stimulus, more fiscal stimulus, and infrastructure spending. These are all trends that I think are just beginning. So in this hour, I'm going to do my best to provide you with some unbiased answers to your finance and investment questions I know you want to figure out how to take advantage of this next phase. Like I said, that is just beginning. Okay. So, as you can tell, we are in for a very information packed podcast for today. So, let's get right to our first caller at 888.99 chart.
2: So I had a question. This is Kevin from Los Angeles. I had a question in regard to GME, that is GameStop. Uh, I know the stock has probably about tripled
1: in the last two months, and I'm just looking at it as maybe a short-term buy. Main reason is just I know there's a lot of hype around the uh, next generation
2: of consoles that are coming out from Sony and Microsoft, and I was just curious as to what you guys thought. Love the podcast, and thanks for answering my question.
1: Well, in the near term, GameStop has some strong momentum here. You're right, it has gone up dramatically over the past few months, and a lot of that has to do with simply not nearly as bad financial results as expected. Still losing money, but their 52-week low is $2.57. Now we're at $14.91, just off its 52-week high. And... Any stock like this that has a high short interest can have this these explosive moves, right? It's forced short covering. That's really what this is. Now, your thesis, however, though, is the exact opposite reason why I'd be buying this, right? The next generation of consoles, whether it's PlayStation 5 or Xbox, what are they calling it? Xbox X, I think. There's Xbox X and there's Xbox S, I think. I don't know exactly the names, but I know they're they're right here on the horizon, right? They're being released, uh, I believe, in November. Only one of them has actually a disk drive. The trend is to download the games, right? It might take... You might have to do it overnight. It takes a while, right? There's still big files. But the vast majority of games now are purchased and streamed and downloaded straight to the console. And the next generation ones even more so. There's even subscriptions that they're launching to where you can just access whatever game you want at any time, right? Uh, based on past titles from older consoles. Guess what that means? Well, if you're paying for a monthly subscription, are you going to go to GameStop and buy these used games? Uh-uh. You're not. (laughs) And so that's what the market had been pricing in. But in just markets can be brutal. Especially for those that get over positioned for a particular theme. I think you're starting to see that now where people are over positioned for the COVID online theme, right? All these Companies that have benefited from the COVID shutdown and work from home, stay at home, orders, etc. That's starting to reverse. And that's what you saw here with GameStop. Is that the expectation of the demise of GameStop was overestimated, at least in the near term. And that's why you're seeing this this pop and this rally. So in the near term, sure, they keep going. But the catalyst has nothing to do with the release of these consoles. In my mind, so this is completely a momentum play, not some valuation play or some uh, great thesis about the business completely turning around. Now you're listening to Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. I'm for investors, you need to remain vigilant, and you know that news can drive stocks up and down, and there's a lot of market gyrations, and you need to be able to manage the fear and greed. That comes with investing and being a human being. So we're ready to talk about whatever is on your mind. Your participation is an important part of the mix. We're taking your calls live at eight 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 ninety nine chart.
0: What a difference a year makes! You've got finance and investment questions, and Justin Klein is here now, taking your calls live. Invest talk. 888-99-CHART.
1: Hi, nice, Steve. I had a quick question about uh, mergers. So what would happen when a company is looking to buy out another
2: company and you have shares of, we'll just say company A has shares of about
1: $150 and company B, the company that is looking to sell to company A, is only worth about 10 Do you think I
2: should keep my stocks or sell my stocks? Thank you.
1: Alright, so first what you're doing is the amateur's biggest mistake. And that is equating to, oh, it's worth $150 a share, or this company's worth $10 a share. Uh-uh. That's not how you look at the value of a company. It's, what is the market cap of the company? right? If there's one share outstanding and it's $150 stock, well, that company is worth $150. If there's a million shares outstanding, and the company's worth uh, trading at $10 a share. Well, that's a $10 million market cap. That company's worth $10 million in the market, okay? So the dollar amount that a company could tr- trade at, currently, does not matter at all about anything, except for in relation to cash flows, earnings, etc. Okay, So it's the first thing that every investor out there, you have to grasp this. And it's the most difficult thing somehow for people to, to grasp. I don't understand it, but it is the number one mistake every beginner investor makes. Second, when a company buys another company, for example, they're going to purchase it, In a couple of ways. Cash or stock. Or, third way, a combination of both. Sometimes, right, they're paying $10 a share, in in your example, for that particular company. And maybe you own that particular company. It might be all cash, and then when that closes, you're getting all cash. You're going to get that $10 per share upon closing, and that's it. You get the cash. You can go do whatever you want with it could also be a combination of cash and stock so $5 might be cash and then $5 might be equity of the acquiring firm okay and so therefore there's going to be some ratio there and you're going to get x number of shares in the acquire firm and you'll see that in your brokerage account upon closing. Now, before the closing, once the merger is announced or the buyout is announced, there's now going to be a correlation, right? You're holding the acquire the acquired firm stock, but the market knows that once that closes, you're going to get the acquirer's stock. And so... The acquiring firm stock or acquired firm stock is going to fluctuate in a ratio of how many shares they're going to get, you're going to get as the shareholder in that acquirer firm. Okay? Hope that was clear. But understand that it's all about the structure of the buyout, of the purchase. And that structure will determine whether you should keep it, or sell it immediately. Now we have special we have a special interview guest coming up at the half hour mark, so let me drill down into my focus point. My focus point today concerns the story competition for PayPal and Square is heating up and according to a new report, JP JP Morgan Chase is making a play to sell more services to millions of American small business owners and pushing into areas that previously big fintech firms only played in. So what JP Morgan is rolling out is what is called quick quick accept. And they allow merchants to take card payments within min- minutes and get it deposited into their Chase business account in the exact same day. Typically other competitors like a Square or a PayPal they either charge for same day funding or they just don't offer it at all. So this is what JP Morgan is trying to encroach on is the business of the squares and PayPals of the world. And they are well positioned to do so. Right? They are holding on to assets. They have customers, especially business customers, and they're trying to capitalize on an emerging trend. And they're saying, Why don't you come to us for everything? Don't go to these other fintech players who aren't banks, even though they're tr- those fintech players are trying to lend a little bit, do some banking-type activities. JP Morgan is trying to do the opposite, saying while we already do the banking activities, the lending and managing of, the, uh, of your, your assets and your cash, we're going to offer fintech-type of products as well. And they've already offered this to more than 3 million small business customers. They launched this in Utah, and it was very popular. And so if you look at the stock of PayPal and Square, they're down today. And I see this as an emerging trend. right? If those players are going to try to encroach on JP Morgan and other big bank businesses right, by trying to become more of a bank, trying to offer lending services, Guess what these bank, big banks are going to do? They're going to reverse it and go the other way and offer these FinTech type of opportunities and services. So I see this space heating up and the big players are just starting to roll out competition for these big FinTech names. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. And in these uncertain times, it's natural for investors to be unsure of their portfolio. So give me a call, I want to hear from you and help you with that. 888-99 chart.
0: It's an Invest Talk Thursday. Just declines on duty and he's happy to provide unbiased answers, but you've got to call with your questions. Invest Talk 888-99 chart. Hello, how you doing? Uh, my name is Angie. I'm
2: calling from New York. I'm actually new at investing, so I had a question regarding uh, Tesla. it has been a lot of talk about how the stock will go up and all go down. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about it and, and what are your thoughts on, on Tesla and if it's actually a good a good play right now. I was just wondering maybe it's just, you know, it's all attachment. So if you can answer that question, that would be great. Thank you very much. I look forward to listening to the answer on the podcast. Thank you very much. I love the show, by the way.
1: All right, looking at Tesla. And if you've been listening to the show for any length of time, you'll know that I have not been a big fan of Tesla. And from the stock price, I've been wrong. Frankly, just have. Uh, Now, they did come out with earnings, and they continued the trend of not making money on the car business, but making a lot of money or decent amount of money on selling regulatory credits. Uh, And so that's really their business right now. Now, does that drive them eventually to scale to where they become profitable? Maybe, but they still continue to struggle on that end. Now, Tesla is, it's its a hype machine, right? It's, uh, Elon's built a, a great brand. Uh, I, I personally argue that that brand is built on more sand than solid foundation, but nonetheless, it's driving uh, sales and driving revenue once again, not necessarily profit. So, And if you look at it from any sort of valuation metric, it remains extremely overvalued. Now, once again, can they propel that brand into something more profitable down the line? I mean, they're going on, what, 10, 12 years have been in business, so it's not a new company anymore. It's a certainly somewhat mature, but still growing company. Uh, and their financial performance has always been all over the board. And so if we rotate out of the growth side of the market into value, I think this is the type of name that will certainly take a hit. Um, So I do not think this is a great investment. But, hey, I've been wrong about Tesla for a while now. So that's just uh, my mea culpa. Let's talk to James in Sonoma. He wants to talk about value stocks versus growth stocks.
2: Yeah, you just touched on it. I think somewhere a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember if it was you or Steve, we're talking about value and growth stocks and how growth stocks have been sort of riding high and um, it, was to, it was going to switch around to value stocks. I wanted to know, I didn't quite catch what your thinking was on that. Why do you think that? And, uh, and uh, expound on that a little bit.
1: Well, I think there's a, a couple of reasons. One, valuations are very stretched in both directions, the value side of the market is underappreciated, under owned. Uh, a, a lot of the ESG trend right away from energy, tobacco stocks, etc., are are pushing those prices of those companies down uh, along with the economic trends. Right. Oil demand is down, things like that. Uh, and there's a lot of hype around technology. Right. Where more and more of our life is life is happening online. We're utilizing more of these online platforms. uh, And that's certainly driving revenue for many of them and driving some profits for the ones that are profitable. But right now, we're priced to perfection. Uh, You've seen that with Netflix here recently. Their, Their subscriber growth was not nearly as good as expected. And a lot of that has to do with rising competition, but also the fact that the world's opening up a little bit more and we have a little bit more to do now than just watch Netflix. And so as we transition from a world that's dominated by the COVID narrative and the stay at home uh, idea, the money will come out of those overhyped names, especially with the very weak hands of these Robinhood traders that are owning a lot of these tech names, Guess what? You start seeing a downtrend. They're going to sell rather quickly. And so I think you're going to start to see and you're already starting to see it. You see that with oil stocks today, money coming out of the growth names and into the value. And it's, on top of that, you have stimulus, the stimulus out of Washington that we know is going to come, whether it happens between now and the election or. In January, when a new administration or just uh, another administration is, is sworn into the White House, there's going to be some sort of economic stimulus. We know that. It's just a matter to what degree. And that is going to be focused more on your bread and butter businesses, your industrial companies. If there is a, an infrastructure plan, an infrastructure bill that is directly hitting on industries that are underappreciated, underowned right? Your bread and butter industrial companies, transportation companies, etc. those are the ones that have been lagging. And those earnings, I think, will be supercharged by the fiscal stimulus more than your tech stocks. And so really, the growth side is just price to perfection. And the value side is under-owned, undervalued, and there's now upside catalyst to a return to normalcy post covid makes sense james
2: yep it makes sense
1: thanks for the call 88899 chart 889924278 now in the next invest talk this story why one analyst is projecting that another deep stock market crash will occur again The opinion warns investors who are too young to remember Black Monday crash of 1987 that at some point, the stock market will lose more than 20% of value in a single day. Is he right? Steve will cover that story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. Let's say you've been thinking about learning a new language. Okay, why? Stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at hackerone.com. That's H A C K E R O N E.com. HackerOne.com.
0: You are listening to Invest Talk every Friday on the program and the podcast. Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99 Chart.
1: Welcome back, everyone. And we are going to jump into our Invest Talk Sector Spotlight Series. And this week, we are going to highlight the travel industry. And In that vein, we have a guest on the show, and her name is Susan Ho, and she is the CEO of GoJourney.com. Welcome, Susan.
2: Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me.
1: No problem. Thanks for being here. Why don't you give our listeners a quick synopsis of GoJourney.com?
2: Yeah, sure. So, uh, Journey, we are an AI-enabled, expert-curated travel planning service. We pair our travelers one-on-one with a dedicated trip designer to plan every aspect of your perfect trip. Uh, so, we work a little bit differently than a typical travel agent, and I can get into that a little bit later, but all in all, we plan over 8,000 fully custom itineraries for our travelers over the last few years, and we built out our own database of 70,000 vetted hotels, tours, activities, attractions, you name it.
1: Well, this makes you uniquely qualified to talk about the travel industry, which has seriously been upended over the past year or so, or I call it, I guess, nine months. And why don't we start off talking about the travel industry in in general? You know, it's coming back, or the leisure travel part of travel is coming back much faster than the business side, right? Does that surprise you? And have you seen any particular shifts in consumer behavior post-pandemic?
2: Yeah, so I think there's quite a bit to unpack there, but the first question is no. um, It it absolutely doesn't surprise me that leisure travel is coming back faster than business. And I think that a lot of people have falsely predicted that business travel would follow the same trend that we saw post-9-11 and post-2008-2009 recession. Um, Because in those instances, it was very much true. Business travel was the first to bounce back, but that was an era before we had Zoom uh, which has very much created a substitute for business travel. Uh, on the leisure side, there really is no digital substitute for physically going and enjoying a place. And I think we've all been cooped up working from home with our partners, with our kids, all in the same space. And we're seeing that people are taking really any chance they can get to build in an escape, even if it's a little one. Um, so I, I think that that kind of leads us to the shift of post-consumer uh, post-pandemic consumer behavior, which is really, of course, the biggest one is around location. Um, you know, with so many travel restrictions in place, our business has shifted from 80% of our trips being international to now over 90% of our trips being domestic. And people are going to places that are more outdoors-driven. They're visiting more charming small towns where there's easy access to outdoor activities. So for New Yorkers, that's, you know, the Hudson Valley, the Catskills, the Finger Lakes, for the Californians, it's, you know, places... That are outside Santa Barbara, Los Olivos, Solvang, places where there's, um, you know, like a, a sort of dining aspect to it, but then also easy access to hiking in nature. Um, and then on the duration side, we're really seeing just like a split between two things. Either people are going to a place and they're camping out for longer and working from there, in which case they're staying in a place for one week, two weeks, even a month or they're taking more frequent, shorter weekend trips of three days or more. So that's really what we're seeing in in terms of how people are adapting to travel in this post-pandemic environment.
1: Interesting trends. Yeah, I've had that myself. I have a friend who has a birthday coming up, and he's struggling to figure out what to go do because he can't really do much more in a big city than just go to restaurants. And uh, so I could see why people are moving to kind of uh, rural trips and stuff like that.
2: Well, he should check out our staycation product. If you go to our site, gojourney.com, basically you'll put in, hey, you know, here is where I'm traveling from. Um, I'm willing to do a two hour drive, a five hour drive. I'm willing to hop on a short flight. And we basically will map out options for you that will fit your criteria.
1: Interesting. Now, I guess that feeds into our next. Question: Which is how do you see servicers on the other side, right? Leisure uh, servicing these leisure travelers—you know, airlines, hotels, vacation rental rentals, tour operators—how are they changing the way they do business? Which ones have you seen maybe are benefiting, and which ones are probably hurt the most?
2: Yeah, so it, it, it's interesting. I think that the biggest change all around is that we're seeing across the board; everyone is offering flexible booking options with refundable rates, right? And a lot of our travelers want to know, okay, if suddenly the rules around travel change and we're no longer allowed to go into this particular Caribbean country, um, you know, they want to know that they're going to be able to get a refund or at least a credit. And that is really peace of mind to get somebody to book anything to begin with right now. So I, I think that's the first thing. We're seeing a lot more flexibility in terms of rates and refunds and things like that. Um, I think in terms of who's benefiting and who isn't, there's been a lot of talk about vacation rentals and Airbnbs really benefiting from this because people are looking for that added privacy. They're looking for um, a place to call all their own that they don't have to share. But we really haven't seen that play out, at least with our customers. Um, People aren't writing off hotels. Most of our travelers are open to both options. And I think that on the hotel side, it's really offering a peace of mind in terms of standardization of cleaning protocols that vacation rentals generally can't offer. Um, so I have to say in terms of hotels versus vacation rentals, who's winning or losing, I think the tour operators, absolutely. That's what's hurting the most. Um, You know, there's just the the overall volume of travel is just so far down from where it was a year ago. Even at best, um, you know, we're hearing flight bookings for domestic are down. Um, Businesses are doing 40 to 50 percent of the tickets that they were selling the same time last year. So that's hitting the mom and pop tour operators the hardest. Um, and, and certainly, you know, we're seeing that play out in the hospitality and dining sector as well. You know, I'm based here in New York City, and it's so difficult for a restaurant in New York City to be able to make any money operating at 25% indoor seating capacity. It's just not possible for them.
1: Yeah, definitely difficult for many parts of the uh, of the entertainment industry, whether that is uh, on travel or uh, restaurants etc and in events especially so a uh, th- lot of maneuvering uh, but I think they'll, they'll we'll get through it right this is a uh, hopefully a short term event yeah, and, and, um, and
2: And you know I, I think that in because of how difficult the restrictions are um, it, it sort of mm-hmm. you know created a bit of a pocket of opportunity for us to do more and showcase more of our value to travelers. Um, especially with restaurants, you know, a big part of what we do is we get people restaurant reservations. Um, we go further than a typical travel agent will in terms of, Hey, we'll tell you where to get a great pour over coffee in the morning. Right. And, you know, mm-hmm. with a lot of the dining options where there's limited outdoor seating or there's limited indoor capacity, I means places that you could have just walked into, you now need a reservation in advance to get it. So we help our clients with that. So this with has that. made your
1: services more valuable, right?
2: Right. Exactly. And so, you know, we're able to help our travelers navigate, okay, this place, here are their mask policies. Here's what they're doing around social distancing. So we empower our clients with that information so they can decide if they're going to be comfortable dining in or if they just want to do takeout.
1: Makes sense. Now, you're kind of a new age travel agent in a way, right? You're using technology to advance the way you service clients as well as your the way you charge, right? You charge on a flat fee. And how have you seen the industry, the travel agent industry, evolve since the 90s, right? The 90s were kind of the heyday of the travel uh, agent. And now with technology, you can streamline the process and make the service even better. So why don't you talk a little bit about how the industry has evolved over the last 20 or 30 years?
2: Yeah, I think, you know, when we look at the travel agents of the 90s, um, you know, I sort of talk about them more as glorified ticket vending machines. Um, and that's mm-hmm. what they were doing. They were the gatekeepers. You couldn't buy an airline ticket unless you talked to a travel agent. And then, you know, you had the rise of these online travel agencies, you know, companies that are now Expedia, Priceline, um, these guys who I kind of think of as um, the tech revolution in travel 1.0, right? They were taking all the inventory that exists and they're putting it online in a way that people can book. But in that realm, there's very little uh, loyalty. In fact, Expedia and Priceline, they even um, have contracts with each other where they'll know if the customer is about to book with their competitor, and they'll showcase ads for their competitor so that they can at least get some advertising revenue out of it. All right. Um, what we're doing is very, very different. Um, we're building loyalty with our travelers, and we're charging for a true advisory service. So instead of selling you something that you already know you want, we're helping you choose your destination. We're helping you choose the best hotel. We're helping you choose the best activities and tours all curated for you. And, you know, most travel advisors in this space are still making the bulk of their money off of commissions. Um, So that basically means if you aren't booking a hotel for $500 a night or more or booking activities and tours that are offered through their commissionable partners – that travel agent is likely going to tell you that they're not the right agent for you. Um, for us, on the other hand, we charge a flat rate per day of a traveler's trip, and we charge just $60 per day because we're able to scale our service with technology. And what that allows us to do is to be really unbiased with our recommendations. We're not looking to maximize our commission. We're looking to make sure that you have the best experience for whatever it is that you're interested in, whether that means, yes, booking you at the Amman or another five-star hotel um, or booking you in an Airbnb where we're not earning any commission. Right. So our flat fee makes it so that we don't have that requirement, that constraint. And it also allows us to go much further in providing recommendations for the things that I think really make a person's trip special. Right. It's what cool local boutiques do you want to shop at. What are the best street food stalls? Um, you know, we have an onboarding experience that asks in your, about all of your interests in detail. And because we've planned so many trips in the past and we have our own database of locations, we use machine learning to surface past trips and recommendations that we've given other travelers who have similar interests to you. And we use that as a starting point for the trip. So basically every trip still is fully customized to every single traveler's interest, but we have a much better starting point, And so that frees up our team's time to focus on the moments that make travel really special and great.
1: So even though people still have the tools to plan their own trips it's becoming a lot like other aspects of our life where we're becoming more and more used to technology, doing the work for us, making the decision for us. And what you're saying or what your, your company is basically uh, executing is using that data to curate a vacation uh, based on certain preferences, and that is... Do you see that as the trend, kind of the future as well? So this part of our life, which typically, like I said, we planned ourselves using our own technology has now changed.
2: Yeah. So I wouldn't say that people are relinquishing decision-making responsibility and that we're making decisions for our travelers. I I think it's more that we're sorting through the noise of the Mm -hmm. sheer amount of information that's available online right now, right? And I think that we're part of this trend where we're seeing technology making, technology is making services that were previously reserved for the ultra wealthy more accessible to a greater proportion of the population. And we're very much a part of that, right? Think about on-demand concierge doctors that are available through telemedicine. Instead of you, you know, trying to figure out what's wrong with me, what's wrong with me, I can talk to an expert very easily on my phone and figure out and and get diagnosed or, or get my prescription written. We have the same thing in the personal stylist realm with companies like Stitch Fix, where you basically work with a tech empowered personal stylist that you know sends you clothing that is tailored to you and helps you sort through all of the many brands and all of the different things that are available online. Um, you have the same thing in interior design with companies like Havenly that are pairing you with an expert interior designer that you can work with virtually. Um, and so all of these services are making something that was previously inaccessible very accessible and affordable. And you're still, and, and at the end of the day, the consumer is still making the end decision about what they want. They're just getting a lot of help sorting through the noise. And so we think of ourselves similarly and, you know, in general, True travel advisors like us are are sort of like financial advisors, right? But instead of helping you manage your money, we're really helping you manage what's arguably your most valuable and limited resource, which is your free time.
1: Yeah, and in today's world with so much data, right? Information superhighway, there's so much coming at you. Uh, We we don't want to or we don't have the time to weed through all the noise and we want to get straight to the point, right? What we want to plan, what we want to do. And that's what Go Journey helps with. So very interesting. Thanks for the insight on the travel industry, especially important in this time. And hopefully our listeners can gather or take something from this interview and apply it to their investment thesis on whatever companies they're looking at in the public realm. So thank you, Susan, for being here. And uh, I wish you luck.
2: Thanks, Justin. Have a good evening.
1: Okay, let's jump right back to our caller questions. So we're, so we're going to go to a live one. Let's go to Saeed in New Jersey looking at Intel. Yes, hi,
2: Justin. Um, so I'm a long-term shareholder in Intel. Um, I had, you know, uh, sold some of my positions two months ago for profit. And I am at a point where, um, you know, I have, a, you know, small position still. And uh, so they came up up with their earnings today, and they were mixed, and uh, investors like it, the shares dropped about 10%. Um, So my question is, is it the right time to maybe uh, buy more, or maybe just give up the rest of my position? Thank you.
1: All right, good question. We like Intel. Uh, Their earnings did come out uh, pretty much in line with expectations. Their guidance going forward actually beat the average estimate for the full year. So I thought that was a positive. Really the markets and investors are focusing on their data center business, which was down about 10% year over year. And their, their margins were down about 15% as well. So or the average selling price, excuse me, for those data center chips. So, which is a lucrative business an area where there's a lot of growth. Uh, Clearly, the economic backdrop, however, has certainly caused some businesses to slow down their investment in the data center, even though more and more things are going online. uh, Maybe they're thinking, well, we know, we just are going to do with what we have. And so that's really what drove down the price of Intel after hours. Down about 10%, you're right. Uh, But we still think their overall business, the diversity of it, is still very strong. So, uh, and, and their innovation, you know, they're, they're long term. They've been the leader in the CPU space. Now, a lot of people are saying, well, AMD is gaining on them and maybe have passed them in some ways, but I don't think so. I still like Intel. Now, our work continues after this final break. So, get your questions in now at eight 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 ninety nine 99 chart.
0: In today's market, more than ever, you need unbiased investing guidance because it can help you achieve financial freedom. Well, you've come to the right place Invest Talk. And Justin Klein is here now taking your calls live. So step up with your questions 888 99 Chart.
1: Hey Steve, hey Justin. My name is Evan. I'm calling from Portsmouth, Virginia. And I had a question about dogs of the Dow. I hear you talk about it all the time on your shows, but I didn't know if you had any recommendations for an ETF or maybe a mutual fund that tracks that theory or strategy.
2: Be looking forward to hearing your answer on the show. Thanks again.
1: Bye. No, there, I, I've looked this up. There is not a particular fund that does, that executes a strategy, but I think there's a reason for that. It's a very simple strategy. The dogs of the Dow basically says, okay, at the beginning of the year, January 1st, you look at the top 10 highest dividend yielding stocks in the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and you allocate 10% of your portfolio to each one. And then guess what? January of the next year, you do the exact same thing. Maybe the same ones, you might have to up your allocation because it uh, maybe fell for that year or maybe it rose uh, for that year and still part of the, the Dow, and you have to cut it. Uh, sorry, still part of the dogs of the Dow, and you still have to cut it. So you have to rebalance. But it's a very simple strategy. So you don't need a fund to do it, especially in today's world where commissions are free. So it's free to implement that particular strategy And it's not hard. So I definitely wouldn't use a fund. And that's probably why there isn't a fund. Now, we're well into the earnings season. And we all know that banks, well, they drive the world, right? Lending drives the world. Money drives the world. That's why we're here. And the third quarter earnings season for the banks were definitely mixed, but better than expected. Now, credit costs were expected to decline from the previous quarter, and they did. Now, The largest banks made outsized provisions for credit losses in the first and second quarter, right? Expecting for defaults and mispayments to increase. And that actually reversed some in the the third quarter, meaning they lowered their loan loss reserve overall. In general, so part of that has to do with stimulus, right? Getting people, getting money in the pockets of people and especially businesses with the PPP. They call them loans, but they're basically money given to uh, businesses. And that was a big factor in driving profits higher, right? When companies reserve or banks reserve money for loan losses. That's count, uh, counted as a loss if that increases for the quarter, right? Because they're expecting that to be lost. When they reverse it and they take that off, meaning they're expecting less defaults, that's added to, to their earnings. Now, the jury is still out, though, on what will the ultimate credit losses be for this COVID cycle. A lot will depend on stimulus, and it's still a little bit up in the air, but for the third quarter, things got a little bit better. Now, JP Morgan said that their base case for their economic projections is them to have about $10 billion in over-reserves. Meaning, banks are well capitalized. The Fed and these banks learn from the last cycle and They're well-capitalized, and the Fed is going to make sure that there aren't any major credit problems at these banks. They don't want to see that again. okay? And going forward, stimulus talks, however, will be a big factor in making sure the banks don't go into some downward spiral. So I don't think that's going to happen. Now, what's really hurting the banks, however, are the interest income or the decline in interest income. Right, With the Fed lowering rates so low, basically to zero, the yield curve has flattened and it makes it more difficult for banks to earn a, high, a higher spread. And if you look at their net interest margins, they all declined for the quarter, pretty much. All the big banks, JP Morgan, Bank of America, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, etc. The only one that rose was US Bancorp only slightly. And so that is what's depressing the the banks and their profits more, more than anything. If interest rates can rise, you can get a, a rising yields curve, that'll certainly help the banks. Now, fee income, that has been a driver of big outperformance for certain banks on investment banking fees, trading fees, uh, etc. So the investment banks are certainly doing better than the commercial banks because they rely heavier on that and with more IPOs and more uh, bonds being issued, etc. that is helping feed revenue overall. And so, banks kind of had a mixed quarter, but it's important to follow what they're doing, and I'm starting to get a little bit more constructive on banks. I had not been a fan of banks for an extended period of time. There's certainly other areas of the finance sector that I like better, but I'm uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of banks quite yet, but I'm getting more constructive. This completes another Invest Talk program. I appreciate you all for tuning in. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night.
0: Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice or shall statements on this program be considered and offered to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing.